Are you an ambitious, driven entrepreneur starting to feel overwhelmed, maybe a little trapped by your business? Well, I have a solution for you. It is the five-day bottleneck to breakthrough challenge, where in an hour a day, we will give you the roadmap, the blueprint, the treasure map to where you can find yourself with more free time, more freedom of money, and a more valuable business. Hope to see you soon www.bottlenecktobreakthrough.com. My guest today is Laura Simpson, co-founder of the Startup Side Door. And cats out of the bag, a little bit of a preview, a successful Dragon's Den deal maker. She is powered by the purpose of helping musicians get paid for their worth and provide them a platform. So our conversation is wide ranging, but I think so important to talk about how creative brains work and how to create a corporate culture. We're asking tough questions. Is the norm and encouraged and also raising money as a startup. It's a great episode. Enjoy. This is The Real Bottom Line, where we tell entrepreneurial stories about true grit and perseverance from frontline business owners themselves. Now, let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Real Bottom Line. My guest today is the fabulous Laura Simpson, CEO and co-founder of Side Door. It is a startup tech that is busy in the music space and they have been doing some amazing things. But Laura, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I would like to start at the beginning, though. Back in the days when you were a reporter and journalist, tell me about your journey. Like, how did you end up as CEO and co-founder of a tech startup? Uh, well, I got into journalism because I was actually covering music to start. I was taking live music photography and I was doing um, show reviews and interviewing artists um I've interviewed like Sarah McLaughlin and like uh Boy George and I don't know a bunch who was of your favorite interview other indie folks my favorite interview that I can think of is I did I think uh Winter Sleep's first like big media interview for the Chronicle Herald and uh I remember they brought me a t-shirt and it was so cute um it was just they were really eager and I was really eager and so we were just adorable ah! <laughs> um but yeah so I did that I mean that was really neither of you had the aura of jadedness yet no exactly that was at the very beginning and then I I sort of gradually I went back to school I went to journalism school and then became a real journalist Ooh. and uh yeah covering um everything from politics to crime to you know, social issues and that sort of thing. And so I, I work primarily in radio and, okay. and then I, and I did some freelancing, like I had, um, I had a piece on a mass shooting, uh, that was front page of the globe and mail one time. Like I did really crazy kind of different stuff than the music industry. But the reason I had gone into journalism was because of music. And then I saw a window to go back in 2007. So I, I took it, I took the leap back in to self-employment world. Well, no, it was with a nonprofit called Music Nova Scotia. Right. So it was like, you know, when you're in journalism, they always call it moving to the dark side when you move to communications. So <laughs> communications and membership role with Music Nova Scotia and Music Nova Scotia, they have, you know, every province has a music industry association to help artists create their careers. And um, 
So I, I took that leap to get back into music and I stayed at Music Nova Scotia for seven years. I ended up being their export development officer and managing a fund and helping people export their music. So that's so exciting. So the through the through thread for you is music yeah. and artists and helping artists get out there into the world. That's so exciting to see that. So line, where does your love of music come from? Do you think? Do you, can you remember a moment in childhood that's, that tweaked that for you? Where do I have? I was just going through some old stuff and um, can I pull out a prop here? Like, like, just like some of the like mixtapes that my friends and I, my brother and I would send back and forth with indie music. And it was a way that my brother who was like eight years older than me and living in Toronto and New York would send me all the like great new music and then my friends who were here were like multiple people were in local bands and so the only thing we did for fun really was go out to see music at all ages clubs mm. and um i just got really really into not just pop music which i did when i was like 12 and stuff but by the time i was 15 16 i was really seeking out like the farthest boundaries of music it was it was kind of an obsession for a long time still is <laughs> Right so you've kind of gone into the business side of music and so you yeah. did some of that obviously at music nova scotia because having a fun helping people export that's the business side of music absolutely tell me what are the biggest gaps in the music industry for the business side for the artist well every artist is they're their own boss they're their own entrepreneur they're they're running their own business for the most part like there's very very few artists that have a team so a manager mm. or a um a label or a booking agent yes. and so they have to be head cook and bottle washer all the time and it's you know I, I know that's difficult for sole proprietors for entrepreneurs but usually if you go into business as a sole proprietor you have some kind of the way your brain works is usually oriented towards that so you know you're yes. going to all of those things if your brain is oriented more towards the creative side and you're more artistic and that is where you pour your heart in to switch to the part of the of the brain which is more practical and like also just removing taking yourself out of it and using yourself as like creating a brand a brand and an image around yourself can be really because you're the product as an artist you're the product and especially right now my co-founder and I always joke that we're in the music adjacent industry because it's like not all music anymore. It's definitely more TikTok than music. So um, oh. it's definitely becoming more about branding the artist rather than the music. And as a, I guess I'm considered a zenial, like in between millennial and Gen X, <laughs> you know, like I still have cassette tapes. So it's really hard for me to like separate the music and the artist. I'm really like, there's so much focus on the artist now, but that's where it's going. So anyway, the artist really does have to be their own entrepreneur. And so that is where we, we put a lot of the work is just trying to figure out how to support that without them losing their minds. <laughs> <laughs> the, the creative mind does think differently about money, about yeah. business and the structures because you know being creative doesn't usually mean that you're used to working within a structure like you it happens when it happens and i create this environment that makes me feel that i have words and lyrics and melodies coming to me versus 
okay, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do that and then I'm going to do this and that's what's going to happen here. It's yeah. a logical, you know, one plus one equals two. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So that's, I mean, in a lot of ways, that's why a lot of indie musicians burn out is trying mm. to do a lot of things. And, uh, you know, I feel like in a lot of ways, I really became passionate when I saw the burnout happening to people I thought were just so friggin' talented. And, you know, my first company that I started after Music Nova Scotia was an artist services company. It was meant yeah. to be on contract with people to help them release music, like for, you know, just short engagements. Um, Cause I really kind of just didn't buy into the commission model for ownership of records. Cause I just, mm. things change so quickly. And, you know, I like relationships that are built sort of like one project at a time. And then you can continuously refresh that, but um, there's a lot of stickiness or a lot of like shadiness, I should say, around ownership of recordings in the industry. So anyway, we wanted to make it more, um, yeah, project by project. And it's just, it's pretty crazy how people can do everything that they think they should do and they're still kind of facing barriers. So if you can kind of take out, take things off their plate, um, yeah and follows some tried and true methods, it at least lets them focus on the artist side and, you know, serve them on the business side. So for the creative entrepreneurs mm -hmm. listening today, if you were to give them your top three lessons or things you've seen that, you know, kind of like if you do this, at least you've got, you know, it's like the 80-20 rule. What mm -hmm. would you say, could you, could you tell me what the top three things would be for that? Um, you know, it's really difficult, but people have to embrace innovative ways of doing things. And, and it doesn't have to be doing them in the same way that everybody else is doing it. But like, if the medium of the day, the way to reach the best distribution channel to reach an audience is through, you know, Spotify or through TikTok or whatever, there are a lot of challenges to accepting working with some of those companies because of the way that... Mm maybe they operate in some things that you may disagree with. So you, I guess choosing a distribution model that matches, like won't like corrode your ethics and also <laughs> being able to, you know, be yourself and master that particular medium and medium in a meaningful way uh. is really helpful. So it's like my example of that is, you know, Dan, my co-founder, who's a touring artist, you know, we talked a lot about TikTok at the beginning and he was, he and I were like, this is a really wild model, but then he's kind of mastered it and, oh, hey. but he's done it in his own way. Like he hasn't yeah. corrupted his own persona or anything to do that. So I think that's sort of a top tip. The other one is just like delegate when you can, even if it's to a friend, because oh. the level of burnout, like a lot of things is like, even if you can get somebody to email venues for you or do the mailing, you know, that sort of thing. Like it's always worth it to delegate some things. You How know? Do you, when you're talking to artists, do you ever talk to them about financial stuff and yeah. stay on top of that? Yeah, because you know we used to manage budgets in the program I would run. And so that was fundamentally why I left to do other work because it was we were finding that even with funding support, there was they were coming away with a great loss. Mm. And the other thing is funding is post- you know, you, I think you get 50% for most programs, you have 50% up front, and then you're, you're posting all that on your credit card. Um, 
So you're financing your own stuff. People are, people are getting in huge credit card debt. And especially now where there's a lot of cancellations regarding uh, because of COVID and, and supply chain issues and that sort of thing. There's a real, I guess my top question is always like, what are you willing to lose? Like, what are you willing to lose financially? And what are you yeah. willing to lose just like in sort of the mental and physical output here? Because that, as long as you can understand what that worst case scenario is, then you can kind of work backwards and work to prevent those worst case scenarios. But yeah. Being aware of what those could be is probably a big deal too. Um, so gosh, 2017, which is hard to believe it's five years now. Mm-hmm. Is it, when do you stop being a startup? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. Um, so yeah, some companies would still like the massive companies would still call themselves startups. And yeah. often what happens there, there's kind of a floating definition, but it's usually centered around product market fit. Okay. So, you know, in our case, it's never about the time it's you've been in business. You do, if you kind of plateau, you're kind of considered, I guess, I guess they call them zombie businesses or, or they call them more, uh, like a more, uh, what is it called? Like denigrating version of that would be like a, you know, a lifestyle business. Oh, but what it is, is that if you're still, if you are still experiencing growth, um, and you're not quite at a growth that is, you know, hitting scale, like you're not scaling in a meaningful way. You're probably not at product market fit and you're probably still reaching for that. And for us, where we've pivoted twice now to manage the market, market conditions, it's, yeah, we're still a startup. <laughs> thank you for like, you've given me some great insight into what that means. So thank you for that. Mm-hmm. And you've, talked about pivoting twice. I mean, your business is all about live performances, kind of anywhere. Like if I wanted to have someone come over and play in my backyard and invite some people and sell some tickets, your platform makes that happen. Right. Did I get that right? That's right. Okay, cool. So COVID shut down everybody's backyard. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that shift. Tell me about how it may have changed you know, did it change? It, I don't think it changed your values, but it did, did change your focus. Oh yeah. So we had a platform that was fully function as a DIY booking um, for people who wanted to host shows and people who are looking to perform shows. And, uh, you know, we were just about to do a huge partnership with South by Southwest. We were moving into the U S and uh, yeah, we shut everything down with South by shut down. Mm-hmm. Uh, we canceled a bunch of our, sh- like all of our shows. And then because my co-founder and I have always worked remotely, we've always, like he's in Vancouver and I'm Halifax, um, we always used Zoom. And so we thought 10 days afterwards, we launched some experimental shows to see what that would be like to use that as an online format. And we already had the ticketing system set up, but we kind of really hacked it together. At the beginning was a real, like behind the scenes kind of, taping together yeah um but uh, you know we solved the zoom bomber problem before zoom did and you know we were able to do secure uh logins and get some really robust uh online stuff together because we had actually started hiring 
um, very quickly in response to what we were seeing in demand. Like within that first month, the demand was massive. Right. And so we um, we hired enough devs to basically scale up the online business, and we did twelve hundred shows in two years. Wow. And it was you know, we were listed alongside some of the bigger companies in like Billboard magazine as platforms to use for online shows. It was, it was a mass massive and successful shift, mm. um, but it is, it's its own beast. The technological lift for an online show is significant for everyone, including the audience. Um, and the burnout is real. Um, and so we started seeing the writing on the wall of the decline back in, well, gosh, the end of last year, really. Yeah. And then it was February of this year when Omicron was still raging that we were like, okay, we, we need to, we need to pivot back because we're going to just lose this completely. Even though we don't know if live is going to come back, we need to go back to what we know how to do. And so we started redesigning the, the whole platform again for version three oh, wow. um, in February. And we just released it in August. Where do you get the vision? for these, uh, for like version three, where did, where do you get your, your inspiration? Where do you get your, how do you get that? How do you set yourself up for these things? I mean, we're, we're constantly talking to users and industry and, and artists and, you know, Dan being a, a touring artist still, mm. we have a lot of ears to the ground. We have a lot of artists on staff. Um, we talk a lot to the folks, the, the Canadian live music industry had a regular, almost weekly group call. Um, so we kind of had our ear to the ground. Um, mm -hmm. But the big thing is that, you know, I really, we have some incredible staff that have asked really tough questions of Dan and I, and uh, especially our designer who we brought on last year really helped us steer the way that we create the platform and, and maintain a really strong vision. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, we just, I, I think listening and, and also working with really great people has kept our vision very solid, I think. That's amazing. Your business is making a profit. You're growing but you may still feel like you don't fully have a grasp on how to make the best use of this success. Don't worry, you're not alone. Hi, I'm Wendy Brookhouse, creator of the Total Wealth Accelerator and host of this podcast. I've developed a quick and easy tool that will give you a detailed snapshot of where you're currently at in your business and wealth growth and how you can improve upon it. It's called your financial diagnostic score. It's completely free and you'll instantly get the results. So head over to TotalWealthScore.com right now and see where you can focus to grow your wealth. The question that comes up for me now is, what have, what have you consciously done to create a culture in your organization such that you can be asked the tough questions, that there, there's no fear of asking, and in fact, it's encouraged? How do you, how do you set that up? You know, um... I'm grateful for this question because it's actually one of the things I'm most proud of is the culture we have at Side Door and I don't get to talk about it that much. Um, I, I have had so many teachers in my life, including you, um, of how to really get the best out of people and really think about how to, you know, I've been, I've been hosting shows, live shows in my house since 2011 and making people feel comfortable and welcome and be belonging to that yeah. 
particular situation is something that I've had to work on for that. Um, and then in a lot of other event-based work that I do, it, there is a lot of like meeting new people, getting people to work with each other, working under pressure, working under deadlines. Um, actually the same is true for journalism, if I can really think about it. But, you know, you're, you're constantly, you know, especially in a startup, you're under a lot of pressure. And so you, you have to help people operate at their best under that. And I've always felt like, and this is from past experience, like, the, the managers and bosses that I've had who were tyrants made me want to have my own business and not be that kind of boss. <laughs> so my, my one, you know, like my first thing was like, I just didn't want it to be a different kind of boss, somebody who was vulnerable and open and honest and transparent with them constantly so that they felt like they could be the same. Beautiful. You also, one of the things you said um, made me think about the word community. Mm. Do you feel like that's part of what you're doing as well within is building a community of artists? Uh, yeah, there's a real, there's a tension between technology and community. Mm. Um, you can have real meaningful uh, communities online and uh, there's a few tech leaders that I follow that have done that really well. Um, and it's difficult when it's it's based on a transaction. So often what we're doing in the live show space is we're creating transactions. So we've been called like the Airbnb of live shows. Now there is what we found real benefit as a, an, a sidebar community building project. So we like during the last couple of years would start up like a private side door host group and we would have- Okay. Uh, meetups with the host or you know like we're often going to festivals and conferences and we're meeting we're grouping artists together so they can talk to us together about their challenges and stuff like that and when we do that kind of group work it's really meaningful because they can see each other and hear each other and understand that this is a shared experience of you know either things that are going right or things that are not going right um and i think that's really important but it like i say there's a tension between how do you optimize a transactional platform and also maintain community. And for me, it's sort of like this sub layer that kind of exists in the real world and the technology is just where you make things happen. It's a more efficient transaction. Oh, interesting. Okay, cool. Thank you for sharing that. One of the things that I wanted to talk about today too, Laura, is when you start up a, a business, when you're in a startup and in that phase, you're typically called upon as a founder to go raise money. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about what you've learned about raising money and what like some of the things that have happened that you learned from that were good or bad. Yeah, I, I remember when I was in an accelerator program, right around when I think, you know, either we were working together um, and I might have mentioned this to you at the time was, you know, like there's a real the road ahead is so undefined when you're starting out because there you could bootstrap. You could just do angel investment. You could just go after grants. You could, you know, and, and the one big thing that was clear to me and explicitly said to me was, if you take on venture capital money, this is a fork in the road that you cannot turn back from. Like this is much different kind of approach. And, you know, early on, I discussed that possibility and really our business model kind of demands a scale that requires venture capital funds. 
Yes. We did make that decision early on because that is the vision we have. We have the vision to go global. The business model demands scale. It's not meant to be a service-based business where we're physically doing all the shows. It's meant to be, how do you create the tools and facilitate the greatest number possible of people to book their own shows? So yeah, we need venture capital. So I, we, I think within the first six months, we started raising angel investment. Yeah. I remember like early advisors and people who were interested donating or donating, investing. That's what it felt like at the time. I was like, you're just giving this to me. Um, they were, they would invest like a thousand dollars. And I'm like, who has a thousand dollars laying around in their bank account? Cause at the time I certainly did not. <laughs> it's interesting how your own self-reference criteria can affect the totally. amount you ask for. Oh, I mean, and you know, I, I was really hung up about money in a lot of ways. Like I didn't think that I was worth, you know, a decent salary, let alone worth having a company that had investment. Like it was a real, mm -hmm. it was a mental mountain to climb. And so I did it as the real corp corporation of the business. I am representing this idea, this vision. And I had to really separate myself from raising oh, money for this. Like I was doing it for the artist. I was doing it for this purpose. And with that, you know, people caught onto the dream and that buoyed us and allowed us to get through like hundreds and hundreds of pitches of right. which only a handful were successful. And I mean, to date we've raised $6 million Canadian and that's amazing. Congratulations, um, that is amazing. And it's not, it's not- Nearly um, enough easy no no it's just not easy but it's it's definitely i'm at the stage where yeah i think i've refined the approach of you know pitching this is the company and it's not about me it's about how i can represent the work that we're doing did you start with um like what did you offer in return was it convertible debentures was it equity where did you start with that yeah we started with convertible notes um in the U.S. is called a safe note. In Canada, it's called a kiss note. It's like a basic boilerplate template that you, you know, your lawyer can just provide you, and it's a pretty standard, agreed upon um, way of getting cash in the door quickly, but then converting at your first round. So um, we did that uh, to start, um, and then we did a proper series seed round of equity shares, and that was back in. Um, we closed in uh, June of 2021. And so we, and we also have done, you know, we've gone after grants and that sort of thing, usually when they're above a certain amount, to be honest, because it's not really worth the mm. time if it's only for a little bit or the work involved is a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then we have a couple of loans that we went after with ACOA and ACOA has been a really good partner as well. What, um, what did you have to learn? When you think about, you know, we talked about your money mindset and obviously you found a way around that. And I'm, you know, these, I think money mindset changes slowly over time if you're not directly digging at it. Right. Mm -hmm. So you probably changed your money mindset to some degree. Mm -hmm. However, you also had to learn a whole new language. Yeah. How did you do that? Where were the resources? Uh, yeah. Both of those things are so true. Um, I, I did, I kind of go back to school a lot. Like I do a lot of, sometimes I do self-guided learning about just terminology. Like I will be in an investment meeting and sometimes be Googling stuff that they're asking me. There's no joke about that. Like it's, 
Yeah. It's painful and necessary. <laughs> um, but, you know, especially with the acronyms, Lord, the acronyms, I could, you know, if I do yeah. spelling bee and just the acronyms you have to know. But like I read, you know, Venture Deals, which is one of the first pieces of advice was just to read the textbook, you know, um, and I refer back to it often. I talk a lot to the friendly uh, venture capitalists that I know and ask them just questions, you know, about how things work. And I lean on my lawyer a lot, yep. um, which is costly, but important. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah. And fellow founders are really great. Um, support as well, but you know, mainly mainly advisors I trust and and some documentation out there that. But I like I just went back to school recently with some of the financial literacy, not school, but I did a course like a, a, you know, founder group course that was mainly in and around financial literacy. That was just this past year, just so I could, yeah. you know, boost my knowledge. Yeah, when we hear the in the media and in the the the. the that's out there a lot about women founders or women co-founders and how little of the money and the funding actually goes for them. Have mm. you seen that? I mean, the statistics are pretty shocking. And yeah. uh, 7% of women founders and 15% with a co-founder who's male. Yeah. Get funded. I, yeah. I mean, like, I guess I only know my own experience and I haven't felt like I guess early on, I've had some interesting experiences where it felt like people were just talking to Dan and not talking to me. And I'd be like, I'm running the company. I'm not sure what's happening here. Right. Um, that was strange. And Dan was always very, had a good way of kind of steering, you know, oh, that's a question that Laura should answer because she is yeah. doing the operational um, and, and financial management. And so he's been very good about that, but I think that's part of it is just like the assumption that, I don't know, that the woman isn't doing the things, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's my only sort of experience with that. Interesting. If you had one piece of advice for a startup, someone who has a, a germ of an idea, and I know you are big on doing what you love and that there's a problem you want, you really, really want to solve. What's the second piece of advice you have? Yeah, that's a great question too. Um, I really worked hard to find my like learning community, the spaces where I could learn and the people I could learn from. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the day, it was kind of cobbled together. It was like a physical space, which ended up being Volta. Um, and the people there who ended up being like former founders and some program advisors and then just some like investors who may not necessarily be involved in mine, then just like industry people. And I kind of cobbled together like this network of people that I could rely on. So just, yeah, pulling together people. And a lot of times, like it's not the people who are obvious, it's the people who really make you feel in your gut, like they get it. And they're providing advice without ego and they're they have your interest at heart like that's that's the kind of community you need to build <laughs> and it and it really is a gut feel on that isn't it oh yeah yeah kind of hard I'm, to get someone to sign a piece of paper i have your best interests at heart <laughs> yeah no it's definitely a gut feel and like i um yeah i can't describe it in any other way it's like the evidence is kind of in the the proof is in the pudding as it were you know absolutely is there anything I haven't asked you, Laura, that I should have asked you today? 
Uh, no, I don't think so. I think, you know, I can I do a plug for you and just our relationship? Sure. I think. No, I think at the beginning, like one of our earliest conversations, if I can say this on the record, was you making me write down what kind of salary I thought I deserved. And I think I put like $40,000 or something. Well, no, maybe not. I had only earned, uh, I think the max was 35,000 at the time. Yeah. And I, I really didn't, and, and it, it's not about how much I can earn in a salary. It's more about just like thinking about how far I could go with that and not equating that number with like greed or mm. you know, like the the absence of other people not having that because I I have a real thing with just wanting everybody to be okay right and so I wanted to feel like I had earned that and I think you helped me reframe what that meant and so the money mindset thing is really important and it needs to start at the very beginning of this entrepreneurial journey or else you're not going to be able to do it it, it comes up in the strangest of places mm -hmm. in the sense of if you're not aware, you can't deal with it because it's in your subconscious level. So if you can get it up at the conscious level, at least you're aware it's there and yeah. you can be aware of the sway it may or may not be holding and whether it's still serving you or not. Right. If you don't have that knowledge, I figure I figure it's like the operating system of my, of my computer. I don't know what's going on, but it makes everything work. <laughs> <laughs> most of the time when I turn it on it works <laughs> yeah, exactly. but I don't know the system underneath that's running it so I think yeah. that's our money mindset it's running us so if we can make it conscious it's good well thanks for sharing that Laura I mean I love I love watching your journey I love watching how successful you've come you know when you look at you're building a, a an organization built on values and vision and it's serving an underserved market and you're building great culture i mean and raising money and able to communicate that vision in such a way that people are buying into it it's pretty amazing thank you so much you're welcome so i think the real bottom line here today is i think it's about embracing innovative ways to get where you're going absolutely nailed awesome. it <laughs> thanks laura thanks for coming out appreciate it Wow, there was just so much learning in this episode. Do you want more? I have a special offer for The Right Entrepreneur, a complimentary one-on-one -on -one coaching session that is all about you, your business, and your goals so that you can accelerate your business and start to accelerate the growth of your network. Head over to wealthcoachwithwendy.com. There you will find a letter that kind of outlines all the details of this offer and also an application form. We have an application form because there's such a limited number of, of slots that we're opening up for this that we want to make sure that the people that um, uh, do are successful in getting the slot, we can make the biggest difference with. So head over to wealthcoachingwithwendy.com and apply today.